I keep feeling like I've uh, bit off more than I can chew. Every time I get up here, I think, I don't have enough time to get through all my material on this. And this is a really tough chapter, Romans 6. We're going to look at Romans 6 and uh, in the last session today, Romans 7. We, uh, in the biblical counseling world, talk a lot about the doctrine of sanctification. And uh, I've already this weekend talked about mortifying sin and putting to death sinful passions and saying no to sinful desires, putting off the old man, putting on the new man, keeping a pure mind, feeding your appetite for righteousness, and living a resurrected life in the power of the Holy Spirit. And all of those things go together. They're all sort of so closely interwoven uh, that they're, they're really different aspects of the same thing. And they are all summed up beautifully in Romans 6, where the theme is sanctification. And in this hour, I want to look at four verses at the heart of that chapter. Romans 6, we'll look at verses 11 through 14. And here is a summary statement of everything Scripture has to say about how Christians become holy. Paul has just mentioned the resurrection of Christ in verses 9 and 10. And now he says, verses 11 through 14, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness, for sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. Now, Uh, Let's look at the context here. The whole book of Romans is an extended, systematic presentation of gospel truth. The outline of Romans really makes a perfect outline of the doctrine of salvation. (coughs) And so, let's quickly trace how Paul got to this point in Romans 6. The gospel presentation starts in chapter 1, immediately after 15 verses of greeting, just sort of formal greetings, and then the greeting culminates in verse 15 where Paul says, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. And he's so eager to preach the gospel to Rome that he decides to devote this entire epistle to the gospel, and everything from this point on is a systematic exposition of gospel doctrines. It starts with that famous statement in chapter 1, verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And notice how Paul says very clearly there that the result of the gospel faithfully proclaimed is the salvation of individual souls. You hear a lot of people today claiming that the gospel message really isn't about individual salvation at all, it's about the kingdom of God, or it's about justice here on earth, or whatever. And sometimes you'll hear people suggest that if we really understood the gospel, we would be less concerned with uh, uh, who's going to heaven and who's going to hell, and we would be more concerned with God's will in the here and now. And, and I want to say to you, whenever you hear anyone talking that way, watch out. Because it's fine to be concerned with God's will done here on earth. That's even part of the Lord's Prayer. But Colossians 3 verse 2 says, Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. And anyone who thinks a heavenly mindset is somehow contradictory to God's will on earth probably doesn't understand the first thing about the gospel. And unfortunately, the church today is full of people like that, so steer clear of them. Now, follow this. Paul first mentions the gospel in chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. Then he immediately launches into his exposition of the gospel in verse 17. Verse 16 says, the effect of the gospel is salvation. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Verse 17 says that the subject matter of the gospel is the righteousness of God. So that's the point of the gospel. It's about the righteousness of God. But then notice, he begins with a long discourse on the unrighteousness of all humanity. The first three chapters of Romans are all about sin and guilt. And Paul meticulously demonstrates that the whole world is guilty before God. 
in fact, not one person can escape God's guilty verdict. He says this repeatedly, starting in chapter 3, verse 10. No one is righteous, no, not one. Verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then, suddenly, in the middle of chapter 3, he introduces the doctrine of justification by faith, which is the very heart of Pauline soteriology. The doctrine of justification by faith is, in fact, the central focus of uh, the gospel or, or the epistle to the Romans. The section on justification starts chapter 3, verse 21, and continues through the end of chapter 5. And just to, since I'm only giving you context here, to sum up that section, Paul is teaching that sinners can have a righteous standing before God and full acceptance because of a righteousness that is imputed to them. Uh, an, an external righteousness is reckoned to their account. And that's the ground on which they stand before God. No one earns favor with God by their own works, he says. But in the words of Romans 3.24, we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And he also says in chapter 4, verse 6, that God imputes righteousness to sinners apart from their works. So in other words, our standing before God is a free gift of divine grace based on a perfect righteousness that exists outside of us, and that righteousness is imputed to us or credited to our account. We get credit for it even though it doesn't belong to us. And we lay hold of that imputed righteousness by faith alone. That's the very lesson of chapter 4. And then chapter 5 is kind of a systematic rehearsal of the benefits of our justification. Verses 1 and 2 of chapter 5 say, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We, through him, have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. We have peace with God. We have the assurance of eternal blessing. That's what Paul means when he speaks of hope in verses 4 and 5. It's a firm assurance not, not just a vague hope, but a real assurance. We also have, verses 2 and 3, an unassailable reason for joy and rejoicing and an abundance of grace. And then chapter 5 unpacks all of that. So that brings us to chapter 6, where Paul begins to explore the practical ramifications of this doctrine that he's been teaching, justification by faith alone. And he begins with a question, and it's the natural question to ask. Since I'm justified and forgiven and given a perfect standing before God by a righteousness that I did nothing to earn... So the question that comes to mind is, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? If if we obtain a right standing before God on the basis of Christ's work, not because of what we do, if salvation is a free gift, does that mean we we can continue in sin? Does the doctrine of justification by faith give us license to sin? And Paul immediately answers that question in clear and unambiguous terms. Verse 2, by no means. How can we who died to sin live in it? Now, the remainder of chapters 6 and 7 is an extended explanation of what that statement means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? He's unpacking that for two chapters, and and he, he answers questions like, what does it mean to be dead to sin? And, and if we are truly dead to sin, why is it still such a struggle for us to overcome sin in our daily lives? That's what we'll be looking at in the final hour today. And that whole issue then introduces a significant change in subject matter for the Apostle Paul. He moves from the doctrine of justification into the doctrine of sanctification. And the focus shifts temporarily in chapter 6 and 7 to the issue from the issue of our standing before God to the question of our daily walk. And it's absolutely vital to keep these two doctrines, justification and sanctification, distinct. Although they go hand in hand in a way that makes them practically inseparable, they're not the same thing. They're like husband and wife, inseparable but still different. They can never be completely divorced from one another, but they also must never be confused. Now, I... I hope you haven't tuned me out. If it sounds like I'm about to go into a theoretical discussion of some doctrinal fine point here, some of you are going to be tempted to think, well, this is not for me. I'm not a theologian. Give me the practical stuff and leave the 
doctrinal details to the seminary students, but understand, this is not a fine point. This is not theological hair-splitting, and it's not just academic. Right here at this point is where the New Testament doctrine becomes most practical. In fact, I'd say that if you understand nothing else about the theology of the gospel, you need to understand what justification is and what sanctification is and how the two are different because this has huge ramifications for how we live as Christians. And in fact, if you want to see how important and how practical this doctrine is, look at the confusion and corruption that exists in the Roman Catholic Church from the sale of indulgences and other abuses that led to the Protestant Reformation uh, to the widespread sexual misconduct among Roman Catholic priests today. And I'm not exaggerating when I say that all of it, all of that corruption that you see constantly bubbling to the surface in the Catholic system is ultimately rooted in Roman Catholicism's failure to understand the proper biblical distinction between justification and sanctification. The most fundamental error of Roman Catholic doctrine is this very thing. They, they tend to mingle and mix justification and sanctification. They combine and confuse things that need to be kept distinct. And from that one mistake alone, all the other errors flow. Let me, let me just explain what I mean. Justification is what occurs at the moment you first believe. Your sins are forgiven. Your record is wiped clean of all guilt, past, present, and future. Christ purchased that forgiveness by taking the full weight of sin's guilt on himself and paying the penalty for it in full so that in the words of 1 Corinthians 5.21, God the Father made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. Christ bore our sins in his own body on the tree, according to 1 Peter 2.24, or Isaiah 53, verse 5. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we're healed. That's what the cross was all about. Christ paid in full all the guilt of all the sins of all the people who would ever believe. But there's something more in justification than merely forgiveness. Christ didn't merely take our sins and erase the guilt. He also provided for us a perfect righteousness. There's an exchange here. He took the guilt of our sins. We get credit for his righteousness. In fact, uh, I started to read... 2 Corinthians 5.21, here's the rest of the verse. God has made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That's in Christ. In other words, his righteousness is imputed to us in the same way our sins were imputed to him. And that righteousness that is imputed to us becomes the basis for our standing before God so that God accepts us as if we were perfectly righteous because he has clothed us in the perfect righteousness of Christ. And so now we stand before God in the in the words of the Apostle Paul, not having our own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. That's Philippians 3.9. So that's justification, and it occurs in an instant. It is a declaration of God, a legal decree, really, and it is complete once and for all eternity. It's not a process. Don't think of justification as a process. It's a legal decree from the divine judge who declares us once and for all not guilty, but fully and perfectly righteous on the, solely on the basis of what Christ has done for us. None of that is on the basis of anything we do to earn it. That's what scripture means when it says we're saved by grace through faith and not by works. Now, the proof that justification is a one-time event and not a process is that when Paul speaks of it, he always speaks of it in a past tense, as a past tense reality in the life of every believer. Romans 5.1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And this is Paul's whole point in both Romans and Galatians, that justification is free and final on the basis of Christ's work alone. So for those who trust Christ, our standing before God is a fully settled issue. 
That's why assurance is possible. The issue is settled. Romans 5, 2. We have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope. That is, again, not a vague hope, but the expectation, the assurance of the glory of God. That's an absolute certainty. Now, think with me. If that were not true, if our justification was an incomplete process that is not going to be settled until the final judgment, and there are people today who are teaching that, if that were true, Paul would have no reason whatsoever to raise the question he deals with at the beginning of Romans 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? If our justification depended in any degree on our own righteousness, no one would ever ask that question. But the whole point of Paul's teaching up to this point has been to say that justification is free and final and we are secure in Christ because of what Christ has done and not because of anything we do. And Paul will even have more to say about our eternal security when he gets to chapter 8. So this is a major issue in his theology. But here, he interrupts this discussion of justification by faith to deal with the obvious question. If our standing before God is so secure, what keeps me from continuing in sin? And that question brings up the doctrine of sanctification. Sanctification is is a process. It is the ongoing work of God in us whereby he is conforming us to the image of his son. Again, unlike justification, sanctification is a process. Having given us a secure standing, a legal standing before God in Christ, having imputed Christ's righteousness to our account, God is now bringing us into practical conformity with that righteousness. In other words, when God justifies us, he imputes righteousness to us. When he sanctifies us, he imparts righteousness to us. Both things happen in the life of every believer, but our, our standing before God is established by justification and the imputation of righteousness, not by our sanctification where we become literally more righteous. And the reason for this is obvious. In order to have a righteous standing before God in the first place, we need a perfect righteousness. According to Matthew 5.20, we have to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. But the righteousness of sanctification is imperfect and incomplete, and it will remain imperfect and incomplete until we are finally glorified. And so we need a better righteousness than any righteousness we could ever attain on our own. So Christ supplies that for us. us. Justification forever then settles the question of our standing before God. Once and for all, that's settled. And as I said, virtually all the errors of Roman Catholicism stem from their confusion on this point. They they mingle justification and sanctification. And according to uh, Catholic teaching... According to the canons and decrees of the Council of Trent, a Roman Catholic council, until we are fully and completely made righteous by sanctification, our justification isn't complete in the Roman Catholic system. In other words, they teach that justification is a process that's dependent on sanctification. And that's why they sell indulgences, because their theology doesn't permit Christians to enjoy the full and free forgiveness of justification. That's also why they have invented the doctrine of purgatory. That explains, in their system, how people who die in a state of imperfection can gain entrance into heaven. Purgatory is the place they invented to explain how the sinner's own practical righteousness, the righteousness of sanctification, can be perfected enough to please God. It's an unnecessary doctrine if you understand that we are justified, completely justified, solely on the basis of Christ's already perfect righteousness. And the Catholic confusion on justification also explains why authentic holiness, practical sanctification, is so elusive even among their own clergy. Because true holiness is the fruit of a right standing with God. It's not the basis for a right standing with God. You can't be truly holy until you have a right standing with God. Sanctification is the fruit of justifying faith. And therefore, you can't even begin to understand or participate in authentic sanctification until you've laid hold of justification by faith. 
And if you put the cart before the horse, you're not going to get anywhere. And if you think justification is a reward for sanctification rather than a fruit of it, you won't get anywhere spiritually. And here in Romans 6, Paul is dealing with those very issues. He's explaining why people who are already justified and fully accepted by God in spite of their sin can't continue in their sin in their daily walk. He's showing us the relationship between justification and sanctification. Now remember, this is the issue Paul raises at the beginning of Romans 6. If we are justified by faith and accepted by God for the sake of what Christ has already done on our behalf, what would keep us from continuing in sin? And Paul has one answer to that question. And everything else in Romans 6 flows from that answer. And here's the answer he gives to that question. He says, we cannot continue in sin because those who are justified have been spiritually united with Christ. After all, this is the whole point of justification. Christ's life counts for our life. His righteousness counts as our righteousness. His death counts as our death. And we even participate in his resurrection. We are spiritually united with him in the most intimate and inseparable way. So it is fitting, as Paul says in in Ephesians 5 verse 30, it's fitting to say we are members of his body. The closest earthly comparison to this is marriage where two become one flesh. We are united with Christ in a spiritual union that is even more intimate than that. And this idea of union with Christ is a constant theme in Paul's theology. His favorite way of describing Christians is to say they are in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... He's a new creation. And he repeatedly addresses his epistles to the people, the saints who are in Christ. Romans 16, 7. He sends greetings to Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They're well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. And the verse I quoted earlier, Romans 8, verse 1 ties our union with Christ to the doctrine of justification. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So follow his line of thought here. If we are in union with Christ so that Christ's righteousness counts as our righteousness, his life counts as our life, then his death and resurrection also count as ours. That's the argument he makes in the verses that lead up to our passage, starting in verse 2. Let me read it, starting in verse 2. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his... We shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin, for one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe we shall also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin, once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Now, we can't really go verse by verse through that whole passage. I wish we had time to do that. We don't. But I hope the sense of it is clear to you. The gist is this. Paul is saying, if we're united with Christ, then in a spiritual sense, we are already dead and resurrected. And it doesn't make sense to continue sinning if you're dead to sin and raised to walk in newness of life. Sin is a contradiction in the experience of a true believer. It's utterly out of place because it's inconsistent with who we are. Now, there's been a lot of discussion about whether Paul's referring to water baptism in verse 3. One thing is clear. He is not suggesting that the ritual of water baptism in and of itself is what unites us with Christ. According to Ephesians 3, verse 17, Christ dwells in our hearts by faith. But water baptism symbolizes and signifies that union 
and especially our union with him in his death, burial, and resurrection, which is graphically pictured by baptism by immersion. And Paul's argument is this. Since we are spiritually participants in Christ's death and resurrection, we have, in effect, already died to sin. Verse 6, our old self, that's the, the person I was before salvation, was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So, in other words, I'm a different person now than I was before I was saved, and I should live like it. Again, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, the new has come. And here in Romans 6, Paul uses a series of verbs, some stated and some implied, that outline the steps of our sanctification. This is the series. Know, reckon, resist, yield, obey, and serve. There there is a progression there, and I want you to follow it. Know. There's some doctrinal truth that underlies our sanctification that we need to lay hold of with the intellect. Verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. We know that. That's the, that's the, the topical content, the knowledge base for our sanctification. Next, reckon. He says we have a moral responsibility not only to know that truth, but to embrace it and to take it into account in all of our thinking. Verse 11, so you also must reckon yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Verb number three, resist. He says we also have a duty to act on that spiritual truth that we know and reckon to be true. And we act on it by resisting the power of sin in our everyday lives. Verses 12 and 13. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for righteousness. Then, next verb I've lost count. Is this number four or five? Yield. There's also a duty to surrender our faculties to God. Verse 13. But yield yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Next verb, obey. True submission involves an active, deliberate obedience. Verse 16, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. And then finally, serve. The bottom line in sanctification is that we exchange the slavery of sin for a different kind of slavery. It's not a question of whether we are slaves. The question is, whose slaves are we? Verse 19, just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. And that's the whole matter in a nutshell. Know, reckon, resist, yield, obey, and serve. And sanctification is the process of perfecting a new kind of slavery. That's what it boils down to. If we want real freedom, freedom from sin, we must become slaves to righteousness. The yoke is easy and the burden is light, but it's still a yoke. The truest kind of freedom is still a kind of slavery. That's the essence of Romans 6. And it's all summed up really perfectly in our passage. This passage is an exhortation to exchange one kind of slavery for another. In the same way we once served sin, we must now serve righteousness. In the same way we once yielded our bodies to our own lusts, we now must yield ourselves to God as those who are alive from the dead. So let's look closely now at these four verses, verses 11 through 14. And notice that verse 11 lays a doctrinal foundation. Verses 12 through 13 practically apply that doctrine. And then verse 14 suggests a motive for taking all of this very seriously. And so we'll let that be our outline. First, we'll look at the doctrinal foundation, verse 11. Then verses 12 and 13 are pure practical application. And then we'll see in verse 14 the spiritual motivation Paul gives for the command in verses 12 and 13. So that's our outline if you want to write it down. A doctrinal foundation, 
a practical application, and a spiritual motivation. First notice in verse 11, the doctrinal foundation. Verse 11 sums up in one simple statement everything Paul has said in the first 10 verses of this chapter about our spiritual participation in the death and resurrection of Christ. This doctrine, he says, that we are united with Christ in his death and resurrection, that ought to frame the way we see our relationship to God and to sin. Likewise, he says, reckon yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Dead to sin, alive to God. That's the implication of our union with Christ. That's why we cannot continue living in sin the way we did before we were justified. Now, I hinted at something earlier that I want to elaborate on just a bit here. The the minute you speak of doctrine, there are always some people who think you're dealing with something that's inherently impractical, you know, theoretical stuff, abstract, hypothetical, academic, and therefore irrelevant to life in the real world. But here, I hope you can see clearly why that's really not a very helpful perspective of Bible doctrine. It is doctrine that has brought Paul to this point. For five and a half chapters, he has been systematically expounding some of the most profound theological themes, doctrinal themes, and all the doctrines he has dealt with now converge and culminate in this truth that we are united with Christ in his death and resurrection. So here is a doctrine with obvious and immediate practical ramifications. And there's a reason Paul took five and a half chapters to get to this point. You don't just skip to practical matters. When you're you're teaching theology or counseling people, don't just skip to the practical stuff. Objective doctrinal truth is not incidental. It is foundational. And if you remove the doctrinal foundations from the Christian faith, as many people have tried to do, you end up with sheer moralism. An empty, sort of worthless, works-based religion, man-centered stuff. One of the reasons I am so opposed to the popular trends in modern evangelicalism is that most of these fads and trends that have come along in the past three or four decades have undermined and sabotaged the doctrinal foundations of the Christian faith. Visit the typical evangelical megachurch today and you will hear practical messages with precious little doctrine. Doctrine is considered too controversial, you know, too confusing for the unchurched. And so they simply skip most of it completely in order to cater to people's itching ears. And the Apostle Paul warned Timothy that these times would come when people will not endure sound doctrine. That's 2 Timothy 4.3. We live in just such a time. And apparently there are plenty of church leaders who are perfectly willing to give people whatever they want. And the problem with that, Paul said, is that when people are deprived of sound teaching, they turn away their ears from the truth and are turned to fables. Without a proper foundation of sound doctrine, all the practical exhortation in the world, all of it, is just pious moralism. And that's why Paul has already spent several chapters here laying the doctrinal foundation of justification by faith so that when he gets to chapter 6 and begins to exhort his readers to yield their members as instruments of righteousness unto God, no one who's read him in context could possibly imagine that he is teaching that we can save ourselves by reforming ourselves. Everything Everything he says here about obedience hinges on the truth of our union with Christ and our spiritual participation in Christ's death and resurrection. By the way, I also want to say that along with those who aren't interested in doctrine because they think it's not practical enough, there is an equal and opposite error. There are other people who are obsessed with academic doctrine and they aren't interested in obedience. You know, doctrine is just an intellectual hobby with them. They love to engage in philosophical debates over controversial points of doctrine, but their interest ultimately is academic only. They're hearers of the word, but not doers. And that's just as bad as, maybe even worse than, ignoring doctrine altogether. Jesus said in John 13, 17, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. 
And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13 too, if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and have all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to move mountains, but if I have not love, I am nothing. Doctrine always needs to be applied, all of it. Truth is not something merely for our intellectual consideration. There's, there's always an application, and we are commanded. This is not an option. It's a command to be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving our own selves. And by the way, it's James 1.22. Here in Romans 6, doctrine and practice come together in, a, in perfect harmony. Our union with Christ means that we are dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God. And as we're about to see, the practical implications of that doctrine are enormous. You cannot make progress in sanctification unless you know this truth and reckon it to be true in your own experience. Paul is saying here, let this frame your whole worldview. Reckon it true. Consider yourselves dead to sin. And the Greek word translated consider, and I'm reading the ESV in verse 11, logizomai is the word. It's the same word the translators of the authorized version translated as impute. Throughout Romans 4, God imputes righteousness apart from works. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin, Romans 4.8. And wherever Paul speaks about the imputation of righteousness in Romans 4 and elsewhere, that's the word he uses. God reckons believers to be righteous. He imputes righteousness to them. He accounts them righteous. He doesn't count their sins against them. All of that is the same concept. It's it's an accounting term, in fact. He's reckoning this to be the case. And here, Paul is saying that in a similar way, in exactly the same way, we should consider ourselves, reckon ourselves, to be dead. Impute, Impute death to yourself. Reckon it to be so. Suppose it to be so. Operate on that assumption. That's the proper perspective of our relationship to sin and to God. We are dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now notice, dead indeed, he says. It's not talking about a fiction. It's a fact. It's a spiritual reality, but it's a fact. Consider it real. Reckon it to be a fact. It is a fact, Paul says. Think like that, and then you will live like that. That's the whole key to sanctification and victory over sin. (laughs) Now notice, he is not saying sin is dead. Sin is very much alive and still seeking to have dominion over us. Not only is sin alive and active and trying to rule us, it's, our, it's in our mortal bodies, verse 12. But he says, we're dead to sin. We're beyond the reach of its absolute dominion. Colossians 3, verse 3, for you are dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. That's a liberating truth. We were once dead to God and hopelessly enslaved to sin. Now, because of our spiritual union with Christ, we're dead to sin and alive unto God. And if you genuinely embrace that truth and and let it frame your perspective on everything, reckon it to be true indeed, it will change the way you live. Romans 6, verse 7, because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Now, that's the doctrinal foundation for our text, uh, we have to move quickly on to the second point. This is the practical application. Verses 12 and 13 give us a practical application in three simple admonitions. The first is verse 12. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Now, one thing leaps out Clearly, first of all, there's nothing passive about how we should respond to sin. I have to say this because a lot of people think sanctification is something that happens to you and the best thing you can do is sort of get out of the way. That's not how scripture frames what happens here. This is calling specifically for aggressive, active, assertive resistance against the dominion of sin in our lives. This is something we have to do. It's an imperative, an exhortation. It's a command to be obeyed. It doesn't present sanctification the way so many teachers today do, you know, to be received passively by faith through an act of surrender and a resignation of all effort. Paul doesn't say, let go and let God. 
He doesn't suggest that all we have to do is abandon our fleshly efforts and allow Christ to live his life in us. But on the contrary, he calls for effort, resistance, active opposition to the tyranny of sin. This is a summons to battle. There are many people today who claim that sanctification is an instantaneous deliverance from the power of sin's temptation. And there are many Christians today who are seeking that kind of experience. That really is what the charismatic movement is all about. It's what deeper life theology is all about. It's what every kind of perfectionist teaching claims. And all of them have one thing in common in that they promise a quick and easy deliverance from sin, usually by a single, passive, one-time act of faith or an experience that happens to you. And after that, victory is supposed to be easy. And it would be nice if it were that simple to be rid of the problem of sin, but that is not how Scripture portrays the Christian warfare. Christians who think sanctification work like that are usually frustrated and miserable because they're seeking something that doesn't exist. So they grow discouraged. They question their own salvation. I've personally known and counseled many who have pursued the promise of once and for all victory over sin until they finally give up in defeat or make shipwreck of the faith. I went through a time in my college years where that's how I thought sanctification worked. And I was looking for the deeper life experience, that, that magical sort of miraculous Uh, uh, experience that would thrust me to a higher plane of, of Christian living where I wouldn't be tempted by sin. If that's what you're looking for, you're seeking something the Bible doesn't promise. Sanctification is not, like justification, a gift to be received by faith. Unlike justification, sanctification is a process, and it's a lifelong process whereby God gradually conforms us to the image of his Son. And yes, it is a work of God in us. It's not ultimately the fruit of our efforts or our energy. But don't imagine that your sanctification is a work that God will accomplish apart from your efforts. There is a work that we must do in the process of our sanctification, and our part begins with a determined effort to resist the power and dominion of sin. Don't let sin reign, Paul says. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Now, what does he mean here by your mortal body? Because he seems to be talking about the physical body there, right? That's the part of you that is mortal. Mortality and corruption always go hand in hand. But, as I think I may have even said yesterday, we're not to interpret language like this to mean that, you know, the material part of us is inherently evil or that our physical body is the seat of the evil that's in us and the source of all of our, uh, of our sin. In fact, pretty much all of my messages this weekend have stressed what Jesus said in Matthew 15, 19 through 20, that out of the heart, that is, out of the immaterial part of man, proceed evil thoughts murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. Jesus said, these are the things that defile a man. But the physical body, the mortal body, is a fitting symbol of that corruption because the body itself is subject to death and decay, and the body is also where our sin is most often manifest. Most sinful lusts are simply bodily instincts which in and of themselves wouldn't be evil, but sin turns them into inordinate affections, and those lusts of the flesh get out of control and try to dominate us. And Paul is saying, don't yield to that. A lot of it takes place in your mind, so don't think it's, it's only a physical thing he's talking about here. And when we are finally liberated from this fallen flesh by death or by the second coming of Christ, we will also then be at last free from the presence of sin. But as long as we're in the body, sin is going to pose a problem for us. You you might as well settle that in your heart now. You will always struggle against sinful desires and sinful temptations. That's why Paul often uses the mortal body, the flesh, as a shorthand expression. But he's speaking of the principle of sin that remains in us even after we're redeemed. And that 
principle of sin, that remnant of our fallenness, will remain in us until this corruptible puts on incorruption and that which is mortal puts on immortality. So don't get too hung up on the fact that he, he refers to the mortal body. This is typical Pauline shorthand. It's another way of saying don't let sin reign in you while you are in this fallen flesh. Don't yield to sin. Don't acquiesce to its demands. Don't give in to your lusts. And then there are two more practical admonitions in verse 13. One is negative and the other is positive. The negative one says, do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness. Now that obviously includes your physical body, parts, limbs, digits, organs, and other members. But it also includes the powers and faculties of your mind, your emotions, your will. Don't yield any part of yourself as an instrument of unrighteousness. You're dead to sin. Live like it. But there's another side to this too, and it's the positive admonition. But rather... Offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. If your members are employed in service to God, then they can't be the servants of sin. And that's only fitting for people who are dead to sin but alive to God. Now again, this calls for an active, deliberate effort on our part. There is nothing passive about this. It uses the word offer as in yield, but what it describes is not a, this is not a passive surrender. It calls for an active employment of all of our faculties in the service of God as slaves of righteousness, to borrow language from verse 18, to use the parts of our body as instruments of unrighteousness. That's the path to sanctification. It starts with a doctrinal foundation, grounded in the fact of our union with Christ and our spiritual participation in his death and resurrection. It goes from there to the realm of practical application with these three simple exhortations that set forth our entire duty with respect to sanctification. And I wish I had time this afternoon to outline all the various practical ways of resisting sin and yielding our members to righteousness. But I want to move on to point three. We've seen the doctrinal foundation and the practical application. Now look at the spiritual motivation. Verse 14. For sin shall not be your master because you are not under law but under grace. Now, I barely have time to summarize what that statement means. If we had time to do a proper exegesis of that verse, there's a lot I would want to deal with, the contrast he makes between law and grace. The question of what law this refers to. Is this the law of Moses, divine law in general, moral law in particular? What does he mean when he says you're not under law? And and the question of what Paul means by that statement. What does it mean to be not under law? But I'll have to save most of that for another time. This morning I just want, I want you to see Paul's main point in this verse. Notice, by the way, that when he makes this contrast between law and grace, he immediately raises a second question similar to the one he began the chapter with. And the rest of the chapter is devoted to answering this second question. But Paul doesn't make this statement in verse 14 in order to introduce a new subject. Verse 14 is actually Paul's conclusion to the discussion of verses 1 through 13. And the conjunction for clearly ties it to what he's been saying up to this point. This is the culmination and the conclusion to all those admonitions in verses 12 and 13. Now, try to think this through. This is really a hard passage to interpret because at first glance, it's pretty hard to see how verse 14 fits into the logic of Paul's argument. But here's why he says this. He is giving us a motive and an incentive for obeying the commands of verse 12 and 13. In other words, why, why should we resist sin's efforts to dominate us? And why should we yield our members as instruments of unrighteousness? And the answer he gives is this, because sin shall not have dominion over you. This is not a hopeless or an endless struggle. <clears throat> 
It's a battle in which ultimate victory is guaranteed for all who are truly in Christ. Sin will not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law but under grace. Now, I wish time had... I wish time would permit us to go into detail about what Paul means when he says we're not under law. Again, I'll save most of that for another time. But I do need to say just that he clearly does not mean that the moral principles of the law no longer apply to us. Because it's the law that defines what sin is. 1 John 3, 4, sin is the transgression of the law. And he's saying we shouldn't let sin and reign in our mortal bodies. So he clearly doesn't mean that we're free to disregard the moral demands of the law. Because to do that would be to sin. And he's saying, don't let sin reign. But what he means when he says we're not under the law is that we're not under the curse of the law. We don't have to be motivated by fear. We're not condemned to death and damnation every time we fail. And failure is never the end of the matter because divine grace covers us with God's forgiveness and empowers us to will and to work for God's good pleasure so that God's grace, a positive and powerful force, is now the governing power in our lives. And that means that ultimate triumph is assured because whom God justifies, he also glorifies. Sin will not gain dominion over us. And that's a powerful incentive to obey. And that's the point Paul is making here. And it's a powerful point. And he elaborates on it again in Romans 8. What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? So neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Victory is guaranteed in the end. And if that's not a powerful motive for you to pursue sanctification, then you really haven't laid hold of the truth at all yet, and you need to pray that God will open your eyes to it. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the clarity and the power of this passage. And we confess, along with the Apostle Paul, that we are wretched people prone to sin and powerless on our own to overcome sin, and yet you have united us with Christ. You've shown us your grace. And that very grace is the power we need to be conformed to Christ's image. And we pray, Lord, that that process would continue until it truly is finally complete for the glory of Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.